This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. This is Linux In-Laws, Season 1 episode we can't even be bothered to remember. Martin, how are things? I still think it's 71, you know, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the one with Boris Johnson, you remember? <laughs> Boris Johnson? Cool. Yes. Excellent. You don't remember this? Okay, fair enough. I guess we haven't recorded which... that one yet. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of which, how are things in the kingdom? Yeah, I think Boris is making a comeback soon, isn't he? <laughs> I don't know. Where? But, in uh... the kingdom? Okay. It is, uh, yeah, not going very well, uh, let's put it that way, with the current uh, people in government. Um, yes, we're recording this in July 2024. Charles III has finally taken reign. And what Martin is referring to is the, are these shenanigans that apparently a certain king of England has gotten up to. But uh, Boris Johnson didn't end up in, in, in Tower Bridge, did he? Oh, yes. Not yet. No, no, no. Not, Not yet. yet. Fair enough. Give it some time. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. No, of course, people, that was a joke. We're recording this actually in, in the autumn of 2022. So the, 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 the kingdom is still looking for a stable government, for want of a better expression. But this is not a podcast about politics, strangely enough, but rather about open source software. And that nicely brings us to our guest. We have on the show no other than Joe Drumgool, but without further introduction from my side, Joe, why don't you, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a senior director of developer relations at MongoDB. I actually run a team called Developer Advocacy. I've been at MongoDB for nearly nine years, actually just over nine years uh, this year. And I've been through, yeah, all the changes that MongoDB's been through. It's been a, kind of an interesting journey to watch. But Joe, before we, before we go any further, maybe for these two people in the audience who do not know what Mongo is, or MongoDB rather, why don't you give us a little bit of, of an overview of what this is and why it is important from an open source perspective? Well, I mean... MongoDB is the best database in the world, obviously. Um, I, I mean, you know, I work for MongoDB, so you know, you, ha you know, I'm going to have an a have an angle here. The, the the short story is way back in the day, uh, a bunch of people built a service called DoubleClick, uh, which basically served about two thirds of the ads on the internet. The other third was served by Overture. And one of the challenges of serving online ads is one, you've obviously got to serve all the ads. That takes a, a big read workload off your database. You've got to collect all the clicks. 
that take inserts a big right workload on your database. And you've got to do real-time analytics because you don't want to serve more ads than the customer's paid for. And the customer wants to know how much of his advert revenue is being consumed. This turns out to be a nightmare problem for relational databases. And it was a huge struggle at DoubleClick to scale their relational estate. So when they sold DoubleClick to Google for a sort of salty $3 billion, they decided that they would try and solve this problem generically for everybody in the internet because they perceived rightly that the workloads that were going to be offered and demanded of by the internet were going to be substantial. And that was the genesis of MongoDB. And in its early days, it really only had two real features that set it apart and not much else. JSON as a coin of the realm. Uh, so we started with the, with the departure point that by making JSON the coin of the realm rather than rows and columns, we will be able to offer people the ability to make their, their applications and their schema flexible and reflect any new changes in the business they had to make. And the other thing was it was going to be sorry. a distributed database. Sorry, Joe. Yeah? Just to interrupt you there. JSON, of course, being short for JavaScript object notation, right? Yes, that is right. It's what was it's it's the core data type inside JavaScript, which is still the most popular programming language in the world today. It's in every browser. So we'll I all tend to disagree, but that's a separate subject. We're gonna discuss it we're gonna discuss this later. But anyway, go yeah. ahead. It, it, if you're as old as me, you can remember when XML was trying to rule the roost. Well, JSON is a simpler, kinder format of XML that uh, is easier to use. So the other part of the of the database, it's distributed. It's a distributed database from the ground up. It's not something you add later when you know you decide you can't scale past a single node. It's built for the idea that you're going to build a distributed cluster that's going to scale out linearly to survive the increases in load that we expect to get from our customers. And that was all completed in around about 2009. And the rest of the journey from 2009 to present day has been about adding in a comprehensive set of capabilities that any application developer is going to need. And what we call now a developer data platform. So mobile interfaces, time series databases, full indexing and search with Lucene, data federation so you can put your data into an S3 bucket. We call it the developer data platform. But the journey of MongoDB has been a journey of serving the needs of data-oriented developers from day one to the present day. It's designed to be the easiest development platform for you to build applications around your data. And it's no accident that every single database in the world has added JSON because that turned out to be a great choice to make. Um, and it's no accident that most people today emulate the MongoDB API in some way uh, because it turns out to be a really straightforward way of building modern web applications. That's the essence of MongoDB. Um, we're now a publicly quoted company. Uh, we're over 4,000 employees. We'll, we'll come back to Mongo in a minute. Where, where did you come from before Mongo, just sort of out of interest? Oh, a windy path of chaos and, <laughs> and stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, I, I, for a while before MongoDB, I was, a, I was an entrepreneur, and boy, oh boy, was I bad at that. Uh, <laughs> I founded three software companies in the space of about 10 years, all of which were like, well, you know, you'd never find them now. They kind of disappeared uh, up themselves along the way. Uh, I, I was a really bad entrepreneur and a terrible CEO, and and I learned a lot about myself and those three startups. Mainly that I'm I'm not very good at taking my eye off the ball I like and focusing on the things I don't like. So sales and marketing were always poor seconds to amazing technology, but nobody knew about it. So having done three startups, I started hunting around for like a job job and I took a job in a little startup called Feed Henry which is now Red Hat Mobile and I ran product management there for a while and then one of my engineers left to join MongoDB and he said you should come to this company it's great and uh, uh, luckily enough Jim O'Leary is still here and so am I and that was nine years ago. Ah, fair enough fair enough so, so it's not as though you spent um several years doing relational stuff or something like that first. no I, well i mean every startup i built was built on relational i mean that's what you did you, you there wasn't another game in town I actually if you search my twitter there is a twitter fight i had with a no sql guy in sort of the late 90s where i was basically making the argument for uh, the database i was using at the time which was postgres and uh, shows you what i knew so um I've come through the full gamut of the last sort of two last startups I ran. We built a whole lot on Postgres and had tremendous problems with Postgres, not because Postgres is a bad database, <laughs> but because it's very difficult to change the schema. That's but the big user error, wasn't it? Joe, Joe, we are not going to discuss Postgres here for starters. <laughs> that goes without saying. <laughs> we had Postgres on the podcast long enough, uh, similar to Rust and all the rest of it. So just keep it no Postgres. Happy. Yeah, I'm very happy to keep Postgres out of my mouth for the rest of this session. Excellent. Martin, did you hear this? Just wondering. <laughs> Well, obviously, Postgres has Jason as well as <laughs> as, um, uh, as as Joe, Joe was saying. Many many databases are implementing Jason, right? and yeah. and you're perfectly right. XML used to be the the thing that people were trying to build, but it had all the um, the downsides of schemas and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, yeah, but I mean, I guess would you say that the, uh, the let's say the rise of of, of MongoDB came from at the same time as the agile development type of scenario where uh, you know um, people just build up some uh, with in many iterations and and um, uh, therefore not not in the traditional way of designing them first and so on um there's a little bit of that and 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 mongodb's uh, dynamic schema does lend itself to that iterative cycle of development uh, if you've ever done and I did in several of the startups I, I, I ran. If you've ever done uh, Agile or Scrum or any of these things, you'll know the biggest nightmare is, okay, that's going to require us to change the schema. And everybody puts their hand, head in their hands and goes, well, that's going to take an extra sprint because we're going to need a spike to see how the schema changes, a spike to see how the old and the new are. It, it turns out to be quite painful. So 
that definitely helped. But we, I wouldn't have said we naturally said we were like here to, you know, sort out agile. It did lend itself to that approach. Um, our, our real value prop for the early developers and adopters of MongoDB was, first of all, the drivers are very tightly integrated into the programming languages. So the 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 idiom of programming queries and writes in in MongoDB is much more natural to a programmer. We call it them idiomatic drivers for a reason than than the traditional. Now we're going to cast everything into SQL or worse if you really hate yourself and your programmers an ORM um, and then use that to effectively interface to the relational database. If you're using Node.js or Python, two of our most popular programming languages, there's almost an exact one-to-one concurrence between what you're programming in and what's being stored in the database. And that just makes everything happen a lot quicker. Um, the other thing that you get into trouble with in relational databases is foreign key relations. Foreign key relations are like the concrete for your database. They lock it down into a particular structure. So we make that easier by not having foreign keys in MongoDB. Okay. So, <laughs> um, well, clearly everything is, is a document, but um, um, how do you deal is with... Really? Is it? Why? <laughs> well, I don't know. That's, series, isn't that the idea? The other misconception about MongoDB is that it's a JSON database. That's like calling uh, a relational database a CSV database, right? Most, yes, most you can are, represent no? the tables in CSV in a database, but obviously the underlying storage is different. Well, in our case, it's Beeson, which is a binary encoding of JSON. Uh, so, you know, length and type information are embedded so you don't need to be consistently parsing your data out to, in order to get meaning out of it. And that's all done by the driver, which is what makes the driver a kind of a full voting part of the database. I'm just wondering, do you compress this, Beeson? You can compress it. You okay. can compress it. And and if you look on on a any version of, wire, of, of MongoDB after 3.0 has... Uh, uh, kind of selectable compression. You can have no compression, you can have snappy, or you can have a higher version of compression whose name escapes me at the moment, and you can choose to do that. There's also on-the-wire compression between the driver and, and the server. So the server does no compression? Because I can recall seeing a GitHub issue where a user complained about Mongo going to its knees uh, at a petabyte data scale. Where he tried to put a couple of petabytes into 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 Mongo, it just crashed. Yeah, and 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 Christoph, I can lay you out like a thousand stories from ten years ago about things that went wrong with with their MongoDB, and they they get uh, recycled with an alarming regularity. But okay, those ten so... not, a, a lot of those problems tend to be pre-wired Tiger. So we did an amazing ah, thing. I see. In two thousand and fifteen. We bought this company, Wired Tiger. Now, the Wired Tiger folks have been building NoSQL databases since they designed Berkeley DB and turned it into a commercial product way back in the sort of uh, early 90s. They then were subsequently acquired by, hold on, my computer has just locked me out. Uh, 
They were subsequently acquired by uh, Oracle and became Oracle NoSQL. And then they spun out of Oracle and they left Oracle and founded a company called Wired Tiger. So the Wired Tiger names comes from the original commercialization was a, a company called Sleepy Cat Software. So when they did it again, they called it Wired Tiger. And Wired Tiger was designed from the ground up to be a storage engine designed for very high memory footprint, very uh, uh, high CPU count servers. So the kinds of servers we were starting to see on the internet uh, in Amazon and other places. And one of the things they looked at was that the biggest bottleneck for doing those kinds of storage engines was locking. So they built this complete lock-free architecture. So when we upgraded to Wired Tiger, we reduced our on-disk footprint by a factor of like one-third of what it used to be, but we 10x the performance. So the real genesis of the modern version of MongoDB is the upgrade to the Wired Tiger storage engine. Um, and so that was a huge deal for us there in 2014 and 15. For some reason, Sleepy, the, the name Sleepy Cat rings a bell in a Berkeley DB context. Yeah, that's so the same must... company. They, they exactly. Built... So they must have been present in other storage engine areas too. Well, they kind of stuck to Berkeley DB. They did that thing. And when, the, when Oracle bought Sleepy Cat, Berkeley DB became Oracle NoSQL. Ah, I see. Okay. Uh, Berkeley, of course, being, I think, if I recall correctly, the Simplicity Value Store that is available in most Linux slash Unix. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it, so on the planet. Going back to, there was a time before Linux when. People depended on a range of different versions of software that had been spun out from the original AT&T distributions. And so Berkeley 4.1 to 2 to 3 BSD was based on uh, an AT&T distribution that Berkeley had got way back in the day. So part of the Wired Tiger team actually stripped out all of the AT&T code in, in, in Berkeley BSD in order to make it completely free and independent of AT&T. And that was the genesis of both uh, 4.2, 4.3 BSD, and ultimately free BSD. Uh, the guy's name was Keith Bostick. He's one of the core engineers in Wired Tiger. And, and for the hipsters in the audience, people, this Berkeley database was something that was really popular before the types of SQLite and other kind yeah, of library-based uh, databases arrived on the scene. Berkeley DB was your original single-node key-value store. And so... That's exactly it, even before Redis. Exactly. Yeah. There was stuff. There was life before Redis. Surely not. There were, of, of, course there, of course there was. <laughs> Martin, t tell us about this Oracle thing now you, that you keep raving about. I'm just uh, listening to Joe there. Um... Did you say they 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 bought um, a sleepy cat and then uh, they spun it out again? Well, they didn't spin it out. The guys oh. left Oracle. Ah, and ah okay. Tiger. Well, yeah, so that would have been a bit of a Oracle mistake from a business perspective. Yeah, <laughs> okay. No, they left. They left. They left Oracle. I wonder why. <laughs> I I have, I have spent time at Oracle, and I got to tell you, I quite enjoyed my time working at Oracle way back in the day. Oh no! Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> next, next thing we know that Matt <laughs> joins these reigns, complaining why he've left Oracle. Yeah. 
Martin, do you have to, do you have to, do you have to say anything about this? Well, we're cl- clearly Joe, Joe has to date himself by saying which version of Oracle he started with. <laughs> I I was there for the launch of Oracle Ten. Okay, that's not too bad. No. That makes sense, right? <laughs> I I I have two stories from Oracle that I think are worth recounting. One was the famous email from the head of engineering and I won't name him because it would shame him uh, who sent an email out and, and the title was simply Christmas is cancelled <laughs> nobody and and he the edict was nobody was leaving the office nobody was flying home nobody was going to see their families let your families know you won't be home for Christmas because we're nobody's leaving the office until we until we're, we're code complete and shipped on Oracle 10. And there was great guffaws at this, and then everybody realized he was deadly serious. And I then mean, there was another sorry. core engineering guy who's actually at one of the cloud providers now who had the famous three strikes, you're out, three P1 bugs in your code base, and you're <laughs> going to get fired. No, Joe, remind me, but because I, if I recall this correctly, nine was the version that has serious QA issues back in the day. I was only only there for a couple of years, so Oracle 10 is the only one I know about. So Ah, I I can't really articulate a a position on other versions of Oracle, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, Mark, you were there from version 2 to version 15, right? So maybe you can comment (laughs) on that. I'm joking. Yeah, (laughs) Mark Mark left from 10 or something. (laughs) Oh, no, but maybe before that. Yes, I'm I'm clearly a lot older than Joe. No, I mean, anyway. seriously, people, I can recall, and that was really in full disclosure. Yes, I'm I'm almost as as old as apparently Martin and Joe. No, Joe well, the, the other connection, but, um, the other connection to Postgres, which a lot of people aren't aware of, is that Michael Cahill, who's the founder of uh, Wired Tiger, actually did most of the work for the transaction layer in Postgres and did it as a research project. But before we go into Postgres, and yeah, we, we're <laughs> going to speak. We're going to spend another the next fifty minutes probably on this. Just the, uh, the, the Oracle Postgres podcast. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Welcome to the Oracle Postgres podcast. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, if memory serves correct, Nan had, had serious uh, QA issues because I was working on a project then, and the engineering team that I was part of wasn't too happy about the whole about the whole Oracle thing, and. Oracle, I think, also, if I recall this correctly, and details may or may not be in the show notes, lost some serious market share there with with the with regards to the quality issues that they had with version nine. But you're talking about at least fifty years ago, almost, or something like. Okay, now back to the original topic of the podcast, namely Postgres. <laughs> what do you want me to say about Postgres? Anything a, you want. My my my. my... My, Your favorite my, SQL engine? Uh, so I, 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 I don't have lots of bad things to say about Postgres. It's a great database. I've used it very fruitfully. It is not the be-all and end-all of, you know, I read a lot of Hacker News, and honestly, their answer to every data problem is Postgres. And, you know, my kind of way of positioning Postgres is Postgres is a Great database for world-class problems as long as your world fits on a single node. Uh, If you want to scale up to multiple nodes, if you want to handle all of the users in Fortnite, if you want to deal with all of the IoT sensors that Bosch handles, 
you're going to need a bigger database. And in that scenario, MongoDB is a better fit. Also, if you're going to go and rave about the JSON support in Postgres, which lots of people do, it's like you're kind of throwing out most of the reason you pick Postgres if you're just going to lean totally on the JSON support. And if you want the JSON ah, support, ah, why, don't you well. pick a, why don't you pick a database <laughs> which actually started out with that rather than adding yeah, it yeah, yes, 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 Yeah, no, you, obviously you got the benefit of both, but let's, let's not talk about uh, about Postgres. Um, Play, sorry, playing the advocate's adequate here, Joe. Would you? I mean, if if you're talking about sensors and R two uh, topics, wouldn't you go for something called Influx, like a transfer-based uh, database? I, I, Depending my, on use case, of course. My view on, like, look, there's 150 new database vendors out there, and it any, seems to be any given day. Yes, be, <laughs> that seems to be the steady state. About 150, and they create them as fast as they die. Um, InfluxDB, <laughs> InfluxDB, I know very little about Influx except that it's a time series database. Um, and we just added time series collections to MongoDB. So I'd be saying if you want time series, we've already got it in the package, which is why we call this a data platform and not a, not a database. So another multi-model database like Redis, like Couchbase, well, all the rest. Well, multi-model of is always a problem because multi-model often means making copies of your data and synchronizing, and that means you're guaranteed to have an eventually consistent database. With MongoDB, it's designed to be strongly consistent, top to bottom, regardless of what you add in, whether it's search or time series or data federation. And that's what gives it the attractiveness is, yep, you can choose eventual consistency for performance reasons, but for the default operation, we recommend a strongly consistent model for all of your data. And that most people seem to like because it's really hard to reason about weekly consistent systems. Uh, sorry, Martin, just wondering, marketing did sign the sponsorship agreement with, with MongoDB, right? <laughs> Looks like I'm it. just checking. <laughs> <laughs> so just just be on the same side here. <laughs> you're going to ask me these questions. I'm going to have to answer them. No, Joe, that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was I'll, fine. I'll, that uh, was... I'll, uh, I'll happily talk for hours about Python, my favorite program. <laughs> okay. Why not Rust or something cooler? No jokes aside, that was a joke. Anyway, uh, Martin, but you had a question, and I think. Yeah. It, it, okay. So. We, we briefly talked about Postgres and Mongo. They're, they're clearly both very popular with developers right now. Right? <laughs> um, I guess the one one that we haven't mentioned yet is is Redis, but you talked about consistency a moment ago, so that kind of covers that a little bit. Um, cl clearly, there's scale, there's there's consistency, and uh, those are kind of some of the the main things that people look for. Um, popularity we covered. Um, so, so, how do you see yourselves against, uh, in terms of performance, against, uh, let's say, a Redis or any in-memory database? Within some envelope of performance, you'll get great performance from most modern NoSQL databases. The question is, what do you sacrifice? And it's about mm -hmm. making trade-offs. Like yep. I, you know, we we all know the old adage of "I can make it as fast as you want" if you don't ever want to read your data again. Um, we we uh, what I've seen is you've got to stop going. This is faster than that. 
that that makes no sense and anybody who's doing that isn't properly evaluating either their workload or their use case i guarantee you i can take any database and and find a benchmark that it runs faster than everybody else and every other database vendor can do the same the question we ask and everybody should be asking is can you serve your users in a fashion that makes them delighted to use the software. And often that means low latency combined with excellent user interface design. Because with excellent user interface design, you can often hide the latency inherent in things like network links. The database still has to be fast enough that it's not serving queries in you know over 100 milliseconds per query. But in general, most modern databases can do a hell of a lot. Um, and so often it's not performance that's the bottleneck. It's productivity and change are the bottlenecks for most organizations after they ship version one. So if you want to serve every Fortnite user in real time, they've chosen MongoDB for a reason. Because if, you have, if you've got 5 million users online on your game all the time, you're going to need a database that can serve them in near real time. And that use case works for them, but they've had to very carefully design and structure their database. That wasn't something they knocked out overnight. And it's certainly not just turn on MongoDB and away you go. All of those use cases require careful, careful, careful schema design, careful data layout, careful caching of the data inside the application so you know a database is only part of the story and the performance of the database while it's important to the overall performance of the application once you reach a certain threshold it's no longer the issue and now you've got other problems with within your application yeah i mean fortnite is an interesting example but um clearly for for most uh let's say planet scale applications you can only get away with using an in-memory database to serve those kind of use cases unless you want to buy all the, the Amazon servers in the world. But that's, um, that's A well-tuned database is an in-memory database, right? Uh, most of the time when you're operating a well-tuned distributed database, regardless of where it's come from, it's operating just like an in-memory database. The reads are coming from memory, the writes are going to memory, and by distributing them across a broad enough set of nodes, uh, although often things are synced to disk, you don't actually need to sync stuff to disk. That will get to disk eventually. So an in-memory database just says, I better be sure that all these nodes don't go down at once or I've got some kind of backup to the database. And that generally means you're going to be syncing to disk or to some non-volatile memory at some point. So when people say, I need an in-memory database, what they're really saying is, I need to make sure my working set is in memory. And with a distributed database, you've got no limit to the amount of working set memory you can deploy. So you should be able to keep your whole working set in memory in most. So do you have um, uh, options for consistency in MongoDB? Yeah, turn it up, turn it down. We recommend default, which is right concern is majority, which means a majority of the nodes 
will accept the right before you get back a consistency error. There, it's more sophisticated than that because we have both write concerns and read concerns that will allow you to fine-tune <clears throat> all your SQL isolation levels. And again, it depends on how consistent you want your database to be because, uh, you know, the, the strongest level of read consistency makes for a very slow database in the same way that having everything an acid transaction looks great when you've got 100 users and when you've got 100,000 users, you kind of realize you can't use acid transactions for a lot of the, the straight through processing that you need to do. So sorry, Joe. Just, just, just a quick second there. Not yeah. everybody is a database expert listening to this podcast. Maybe, so maybe you should explain what write, read, and and asset consistency means. Sorry, read and write and consistency and asset compliance, because I think otherwise we will lose some of our listenership. Sure, that goes sure down from two to one or something like this. So just please go ahead. Acid stands for atomic, consistent, idempotent, and durable. Atomic. Each write happens independently of and as if they were the only thing writing to the debate database. Consistent writes appear in the order, in, in some order that you can define, and they don't appear out of order or, or appearing backwards in time. So effectively, if you're creating writes to your account based on all the ATM transactions that you do, they appear in the accounts in the right order, right? Uh, item potent. You do things once and once only, and when you do them once, they happen once. You don't end up having retries or rewrites or multiple writes happening. So the, the same transact, the same request will happen in the same way and return the same results all the time. And then durable. Your data has to be there when you come back for it later, regardless of failures, errors, and network depart, uh, partitions in your database. So that's been a part of the SQL isolation levels for years. And so ACID transactions were part of the SQL standard. They're harder to do in a distributed system, but not impossible. And so you've, you'll see a lot more distributed databases offering ACID transactions. And while... Acid transactions are not a panacea because the performance of acid transactions, because of the protocol around establishing an acid transaction around the set of operations, is uh, complex and expensive. They're a great way to model your software. So often you'll start with acid transactions, and then as you have to scale out, at least you know how they're supposed to operate when you weaken those constraints in order to get the performance that you want. Um, in a distributed database, read concerns and write concerns are kind of the other side of the coin, which is, um, do I want to guarantee that I'm reading the data that's absolutely been written to disk, which means I have to wait for it to write to disk before reading it? Or am I willing to read data in memory in, on the basis that there's a very high probability it's going to get written to disk? And, and in a distributed database, that's almost certainly the case. Um those tuning parameters are not something to take on lightly, and we do recommend everybody adopt the defaults that we've set. When you need higher consistency, you can increase the right concern to the point where literally I'm only going to read data that's been written to disk and is guaranteed never to be rolled back. And for right concerns, again, we recommend write majority, and that means for the majority of the nodes in a distributed database, they've all received the right. So... 
that you guarantee that you'll recover those rights consistently in the event of a loss of some number of the other nodes. That was, thank you very much for Joe. Um, and now back to the original topic, the scaling. Scaling. What can I say about scaling? You can either go up or you can go out. Uh, we recommend going out and with modern cloud infrastructure and our Atlas environment, which will scale over any cloud, you can scale out. If you're Oracle, you scale up and you buy an Exadata and like there's $10 million up in smoke right there before you put a byte of data into it. The cloud has, had a, has been a revolution, right? And the revolution is not a revolution unless there are winners and losers. The winners have obviously been Amazon and the other cloud providers who now offer you a whole range of application programming environments over the cloud. Uh, the losers have been large storage manufacturers and people selling big iron systems for doing ERP and on-premise data processing. Now, we do happen to have a partnership with IBM and they've actually continued to do really well, really well with the business they started doing all those years ago, which is the mainframe business. And interestingly enough, I was at the launch of their most recent platform, Linux One. Linux One offers an insane amount of compute power and a tiny footprint, like a few racks of, of systems. And so for those, still half our business, more than half our business is on-premise. For those kind of companies, a Linux One system just solves all the problems in one box. So my idea of you know the future of how we're going to lay out our systems in terms of scalability, if you're on-prem, you're going to be using big rack systems, effectively a cloud in a box like Linux One. And if you're in the cloud, you're going to pick the cloud of your choice and deploy your database there automatically. And we're seeing more and more uh, of the more modern database vendors moving or either starting natively in the cloud. And of course, with MongoDB Atlas, you can run in any cloud or over all three at the same time. We're one of the only vendors that will allow you to distribute a database across all three clouds. Uh, IBM, if you're listening, the, the email is a sponsor at linuxinlaws.eu <laughs> if you want to send us money. <laughs> and now going back to the slightly more technical issue, yes, Linux One is a very interesting proposal from a company called IBM. Yes. Needless to say, it comes as, as a at a price. If I take a look at Anthos and some other hybrid offerings from the hyperscalers, I do arrive at a much lower price point than... Linux One, I think the entry level, you're looking at 1.5 million or something like this, even just for a small post-Raptor scale type deployment. If you're willing to run in the cloud, then Anthos is a great solution. But if you are, there's still a huge number of our customers who have significant investment in real estate, in data centers, and are not ready to move those workloads to the cloud. And for those customers, Linux One doesn't sound too pricey at 1.5 million. Um, yes, um, diminishing by the second, I might add, because once the CFOs take a closer look, and especially given the fact that these cloud proposals are quite appealing, even on-prem, I might add, because yeah. from a consumption perspective, all the rest of it, uh, if I take a look at the numbers, uh, Joe, and 
I'm going back about one or two years. Yes, Linux One initially was a starter, but it wasn't the savior that IBM envisioned it to be in the mainframe space I'm at. Oh, no, no. I mean, and, and I'm not an IBM expert. I just happened to be at the launch of that. So I was aware that it was it was it was coming out. I, I have no sense of how successful or unsuccessful Linux One has been. But I do look at IBM as a, a company that was here at the start of the computer revolution and continues to punch above its weight as we move through various different iterations of technology, various different move from mainframe to midframe to mini computer to microcomputers. They've always managed to hold their own. And I think they'll continue to do so because IBM has a patent on reinventing itself that nobody else seems to have acquired. And it can reinvent itself pretty much once every 10 years. Uh, more recently, I've seen them, I, I saw a, a talk by their head of design uh, at, a, at, a, at a, uh, an event called Monkey Gras that the Red Monk Analyst Company holds in London. This is probably 10 years ago now, but they were, they were reinventing themselves as a design-centric company. And when you look at IBM's systems now and their, their, their computers and their hardware and their software, there's definitely a design aesthetic there that wasn't there before. And so this is what I mean about, you know, you know anybody who calls out IBM as being out for the count is in for a rude awakening because, like I said, I think they're going to be here when lots of the other companies that uh, we've seen created and, and, and carried on in the last 10 years might have been moved on. So I, I, MongoDB Human Resources, if you're listening, I'm sure I'm not sure you are. Please keep tabs on Joe Drumgool because you might see him defecting to I mean, no, no, no. You may recall what I said at start. I'm having way too much fun at MongoDB. <laughs> and, Joe, that was and also, a joke. we're still a, we're still a relatively small company. I mean, you know, four thousand people isn't a huge number. It's, you know, it's the kind of number that I'll have to check that number. Um, it's the kind of number that, that we can, you can get a lot done and still have a mark as an individual. You can move, you can move the needle as an individual. Before we lose our last I should probably explain what Linux One is in a nutshell so that everybody knows what, what Joe has been talking about for the last five minutes. Linux One is essentially IBM's offering for Linux on a mainframe without even you seeing the mainframe legacy in terms of the heritage where, the, where this architecture comes from. You buy a large black box, you power it on, it's automatically distributed in terms of you getting a few LPARs as in logical partitions with it. That is that is an architecture about 40 years old, if I'm completely mistaken. So it's, it's hyper-redundant out of the box. It has all these classical mainframe features like channel processors as in dedicated CPU architectures for high-speed IO and all the rest of it. It's ultra-resilient. That's the reason why IBM markets the underlying hardware as set-series, as in zero-dawn time, because you're looking at 50-plus years of solid engineering. IBM, again, if you're listening, the email address is sponsor at linuxinlaws.eu. No, I'm joking. <laughs> the beauty is with Linux One is essentially you pick your distribution of choice. You log into the machine. You say this is this is the VM that I would like to have in about one minute of time, and within one minute of time you can deploy it. 
This is IBM's Promise, and I've checked it out. There is actually a community event, as in Kempter Linux Talk, where I port Redis within 45 seconds on a Linux One machine. Links will be in the show notes, but enough of this blatant self-promotion. <laughs> Back to Martin's question. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. You meant, I mean, clearly you've been been there nine years, so it must must be um, doing something right or enjoying it, <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, one uh, reason for, let's say, people to use... Uh, okay, so we, we've got a database we use for putting data in, getting data out, fine. Um, how does MongoDB is... play with the uh, ecosystem of... of, what... of yeah. This is what they normally do, no? Database. Indeed, get, indeed. Put, yes, da- yeah, put yeah, data yeah. in, back, get them back yeah, out. Yeah. If they're completely mistaken, but Martin, you're the database expert. Un- unless it gets lost somewhere in the way, if you're using some exactly. of that virus or what have you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, do continue, please. Yeah, so my question was, how, how do you play with all the, the, the tools out there that people are used to using, your you know your tableaus and your, um, let's say, uh, all those kind of standard uh, ingestion we, tools, like Informatica, and all the kind of stuff. Right? We've had a, we've had a, we've had a BI connector, uh, which has been around for four or five years. I need to check the release date, but uh, for a very long time. And so that effectively allows you to connect any uh, SQL tool to MongoDB and query it as if it was SQL. And we've recently launched Atlas SQL which is the latest version of that BI tool, which is a complete SQL interface to MongoDB. So if you like doing selects rather than find by or aggregation, select away. It works. It's There are select operators in the Mongo shell right now. So yeah, that that's the one way we get with BI connectors. We've, we've worked very hard with our cloud vendors to integrate their authentication mechanisms we run with a bunch of tools like EventBridge with AWS. We've worked very hard recently to integrate Next.js and Vercel's offering into the platform. We work with Datadog. We, we, we have got a tech partner team and a cloud partner team that basically spend their whole time making sure that our ecosystem partners work nicely with MongoDB. But yeah, the big departure for us was saying we, we can't, expect every BI tool in the world to add its own dedicated MongoDB layer. And we tried that. Part of my job in the first couple of years I was at MongoDB, or the first year anyway, was working with tech partners to get them to support MongoDB. And it was a huge uphill battle. So the BI connector is our way of saying the world likes to integrate uh, and query relational data as tables. And so we allow you to do that. That's fine. It's part of being the data platform that we are. We've got to acknowledge the the broadest possible range of access mechanisms for a MongoDB database. Oh, very sensible indeed. Yes. Um, so, so I mean, you you've been there nine years. You're um, looking after developer advocacy. Um, does that still need much doing, or does that kind of run itself? <laughs> it's we're, clearly MongoDB is, is kind of second in the popularity we're, list. We're, I don't know how far it is. We're still at the infancy of our journey. And one of okay. the problems with working in a company like MongoDB is you exist in a bubble that's all that's talked about is MongoDB. Hmm. So 
I was manning the stand at Big Data London recently, about, a, I'm trying to think, three or four weeks ago. Um, and it was refreshing. And, and you know, it was kind of, you know, it's a wake-up call. The number of people who turned up and were like, who are you? What do you do? Never heard of you. Tell Maybe. me what Mongo okay. does. <laughs> No, or they're in the right place. <laughs> no, we 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 still have an enormous chunk of the market that either doesn't know we exist, knows we exist and don't know what we do, or knows we exist and knows what we do from their experience using us nine years ago, right? And and the nine-year-old version of MongoDB was like, let's just say. Wired Tiger really helped bring it up to to snuff as a as a modern uh, web application database tool. So um, there's a lot of education that we do. I mean, we we think of it as a product led growth journey, and so it's not just bringing people onto the platform, but bringing them up that on ramp. And as I said earlier on, building your basic demo application on MongoDB is really easy, but building a real application on MongoDB is as hard as it is to build on any other database. The difference is the actual work of writing the code is easier because it's a more streamlined model and a better mental model of how to think about the data. But schema design, that's a hard thing. You know, data layout, that's a hard thing. Building a, a schema that's both good for today and suitable for tomorrow without massive rewriting, these are hard problems. And those are not problems that will be solved by your database any more than your programming language is going to solve writing algorithms. But anybody will admit to you that writing an algorithm in Python is probably easier than writing an algorithm in assembly language. I, it depends on your background, but <laughs> well, this is—you see, this is where Rust comes in, no? <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. Okay, but this is not a podcast about programming language, but rather about databases. Of I'm completely mistaken. There's a there's a quite a fraternity of Rust people on my team, and I tried it. I just couldn't make head nor tail of it, and maybe it's just I'm showing my age. But yeah, having. The last language I learned that I embraced was Python. Maybe that's the problem that I'm I'm coming at it from too much of a wow, that was easy perspective that I had with Python. I mean Rust has a couple of things going for it. Um of blatant blatant commercial break. There are of course past episodes of something called Linux in Laws dealing mm. with Rust as mm. in blatant Rust marketing. But suffice mm. it to say it's it's if you're concerned with system programming and performance and some other aspects of modern day hipster type programming languages, you you should probably check it out. The gray, even the graybeards of something called the Linux kernel people as a community recently, and when I say recently, I mean the last two years almost, since that infamous Linux Plumber conference basically said, no, look, Rust is fit to go into the kernel. Unlike about 20, 30 years ago, links are may or may not be, sorry, not 20 years ago, but rather uh, not 30 years ago, but rather 20 years ago, um, decided that C++ was unfit to go into the kernel. There's a famous <laughs> post, and links will be in the show notes again, about uh, from a guy called Linus Torvalds who said, I won't have this for a reason I might add. 
So yeah, he Ross was probably is right about C++. I mean, I, I did most of my uh, sort of between, I'm trying to think, between 1997 and like 2002, 2000 actually, I, all I did was program in C++. And oh my God, what Microsoft a nightmare. Yes, exactly. I wrote parts of an operating system kernel of an experimental one I might add about 25 years ago in set language. So yes, I can commiserate. But uh, before we wrap this up, Joe, is there anything apart from blatant MongoDB marketing <laughs> that we should discuss <laughs> before we wrap up the show? Um, I'm joking, of course. I... I, I... I guess I'd, I'd appeal to your listeners to, you know, try and dispel your prejudices about what you've read about MongoDB. One of my advocates has a deck, uh, and it's just called Everything You Know About MongoDB Is Wrong, and it attempts to dispel some of the myths that have grown up around MongoDB in the last couple of years. If like you want to try a distributed database, go and give it a spin on Atlas. It's free to use and there's no credit card required. And I, you, I think you'll find the experience is somewhat different from what you've read about. Uh, what, what are the prejudices out there in the community about MongoDB before I forget this? So we, we kind of uh, lost track of our community like a lot of people during COVID and we're rebooting the whole community. Uh, one of my colleagues, Angie Byron, is leading that effort. And I'm sure she'd be delighted to join you on the show and tell you all about that. But we just had our first ever mug in Hyderabad uh, this week. We've got one on in Munich tonight. Uh, Amadeus is speaking at it. Um, no and, su no yeah. surprise there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Well, they use Couchbase too, apparently, but that's the They use price. everything. This is, this is, so one of the common conceits, and, you know, I, if I could give any piece of advice to, uh, to the people nipping at our, our heels and saying we're going to be the next MongoDB, when you, do, when you sell to a company like Amadeus, they use everything. They have every database under the sun because they've been going for, I don't even kind of remember when Amadeus was founded, but it's a long time ago. And the point is, your real estate is bigger than the than the one company you buy from. And we're delighted they use MongoDB, and we're even more delighted they're willing to talk about it publicly. But often, uh, uh, customers will not want to talk about your brand new database because, one, they're not sure if you're going to be around for a long time, and two... They're concerned about upsetting their existing vendors who are still selling them software. Um, and so often it's difficult to get early customers to disclose or to talk about their reference accounts. So, yeah, we're delighted that Amadeus is willing to talk about us. But they also talk about databases that they use. And, you know, we shouldn't be offended by that. I mean, they wrote the first Carbonitas operator for Redis, if, if I'm completely mistaken, way even before Redis, a company called Redis Enterprise then did. Sorry, Redis Labs, mistake. No, it's no, I mean, they are really on the on the forefront of technology, yeah, they, especially they, when it comes down to open source deployments. They, they were running one of the most sophisticated MongoDB clusters in the world in 2014 and 15 when I first came across them. Mm. Okay, and that nicely brings us to the to to the wrap to, to wrapping up the show. There's something called the 
picks are uh, the pox as in the pixels of the the, the the poxes the picks of the week before i completely lose it this is something now we normally do with regards to what's worth mentioning that has come across your path over the last couple of weeks martin normally mentions adult entertainment websites i normally go for movies or books or something it really depends but the point that i'm making is joke aside it's it's anything anything goes the, so the, the hot so, in our house at the moment are uh, and they're vying for tv attention are house of dragons and the new lord of the rings series the rings of power on amazon and so we have episodes queued up because myself and my wife are both traveling and so often we aren't around for the live watching but we're going to be live watching tonight and tonight is the first episode after Viserys died, the old king who had kept the peace for so long. So it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds after his death because there's lots of people who want to kill lots of other people. So uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, next, next, uh, I'm trying to think, next Sunday I'm flying to... San Francisco for the next JS conference. And I think what Vercel has done with next JS in the last couple of years is an example of how even a small company can seize the imagination of a market. And I think next JS is an amazing technology. So I'm very excited to be at that conference and delighted to be a partner of Vercel for that event. So and- again, if you haven't tried next JS, give it a spin. It's an amazing improvement on the basic react technology ah we're talking about hipster web front ends hipster web front ends you <laughs> said it <laughs> i see fair enough i was just wondering what Next.js is so oh, sorry uh, it's a better was... model for programming your front end but it embeds ah. business logic as well uh, it's Martin, very slick yes martin please take note because you're way younger well, you're way younger than i am so that might be right up your alley uh, hip, hipster front ends. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, very much so. <laughs> yes. If recent product management sessions are anything to go by with regards to the podcast, I'm at. Oh, front end. But yes. that's beside the point. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. Martin, so Martin, what's your what's your what's your pox apart from apart from React um, or something you know, on, <laughs> or React Native? <laughs> No, no, mine is a television series called Red Election. Red Election. Um, okay. Which is uh, clearly quite topical with Red referring to our neighbors in the East. Not quite so friendly anymore, but uh, yeah, it's, it's quite watchable. There's um, good acting. The storyline is a bit weak at the end, unfortunately. But <laughs> Okay. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth watching. Yeah. Interesting. And for some strange odd reason, I don't have a pox this week. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. A, a, a fortnight without a pox. Has, I think that's a, that's a premiere, if I'm not completely mistaken. Well, I could mention some odd recipe. But <laughs> giving away this recipe would mean then that I can't make that breakthrough on the commercial front. Let's put it this way, people. If you... If you want to indulge the missus, try out salmon with rice boiled in fruit juice. <laughs> Details may or may not be in the show notes, depending. But this is, I've tried this for about five, 
parties so far, and everybody has survived it, and most of them keep coming back. Was that salmon t- baked in or boiled in? No, no, you no, no, you fry the salmon and you just do the rice with fruit juice and some other bits and pieces, like cardamom, cinnamon, that and is, some other stuff. That sounds so scary. I'm going to have to give it a try. Don't forget the garlic and the once you fry the the salmon. And what I tried tonight was actually a sauce for the for the salmon that was based on soy sauce, fruit juice, and licorice. Which which fruit juice are you using, Christoph? Blood orange. Okay. And that, that and that's and that sauce alone just killed the audience in terms of their <laughs> their craving for this. <laughs> not, Martin, not literally speaking about that. Okay, are you sure about that? <laughs> I'm positive. I know they have some. They have been surviving this. Now, I mean, people, you heard it here first. Quite a few, quite a few cooks and chefs and and star chefs. I, I might add, have tried this. Most of them apparently have failed. You heard me first. If you rip this off, marketing of something called Living Sudan Illness will come after you. And our marketing department, if, if the last staff member that Martin <laughs> sent around, is actually staffed by Russians. Well, that might be a <laughs> so good idea. there you go. <laughs> anyway, uh, Joe, thank you much for being here. That was more than interesting. And as I said, um, marketing from, from MongoDB, if you're listening, the email address is sponsor at linuxinlos.eu. <laughs> if Joe wants to be around a second time, it may come as a price, at a price now. <laughs> Only kidding, Joe. <laughs> Your mother welcome to join to join in a few quarters time. When I reckon, I'm sure that there are updates. I will. Uh, I will get you some swag vouchers for your show listeners, so they can hand, help themselves to some t-shirts. Much appreciated, Joe. No problem. So, so we could instantiate our first raffle, Martin. What about that? Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Excellent job. Yeah, we look yeah. forward to that. Okay. And with that, people, thank you for listening. Bye. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for their song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. <laughs> Thank you.